I'm at the Department of Chemistry at the University of Oxford today, and I'm speaking to Professor Richard Compton. Richard, would you like to introduce yourself? Good morning, Philippa. Um, nice to talk to you. Uh, yes, I'm Richard Compton. I'm a Professor of Chemistry here, and I'm also a Fellow at St John's College. So I have two roles in the university. One is teaching undergraduates, which I do about three terms a year, and the other is as a research professor here in Oxford. Can you explain the area of research that your work mainly focuses on? Essentially, I'm an electrochemist, um, which is to say we study the interaction of electricity with matter. Um, Currently, although this has been a topic that's investigated since the time of Michael Faraday, uh, this is currently very important since modern science links the molecular to the nano, to the micro, to the macro scales, and most of the forces operating there are a mixture of electrical and chemical. So our research in the broadest terms explains how molecular chemistry links to macroscopic properties. Right, and why does this area of research really turn you on as a researcher? It turns me on because uh, it challenges me across the board. I need to understand the chemistry, the physics and mathematics, and I wish I could understand the biology, but it's, it's broad, it underpins a vast range of science, and it's absolutely crucial. Indeed, if you look back in the early part of the 20th century in Germany, the, the, the departments, and remember Germany was the centre of physical chemistry, most of the departments there were the departments of physical chemistry and electrochemistry. And I see a great future for electrochemistry. The challenges in, 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 in the modern world are, are things like energy, and of course electrochemistry is at the heart of that. So if we're thinking batteries, we're thinking fuel cells, we're thinking alternative energy such as solar cells. Electrochemistry absolutely underpins all of this. And it's at the heart of physical chemistry. It's worth speculating on the direction of physical chemistry. British physical chemistry has always been a little bit isolated from the rest of the world. It's been small molecule gas phase based, uh, which is a pity because it, it fails to tap into the fact that physical chemistry is actually chemistry, it is not physics, and the future for physical chemistry lies in putting the chemistry back into physical chemistry. And the aim of that is, as I've already hinted, at energy, but also things like analytical chemistry. The origins of all modern analytical tools are based in physical chemistry. If we look back, NMR was essentially invented in Oxford with the work of Rex Richards, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, relies heavily on the work of Turner. These are techniques that are absolutely crucial to modern analytical chemistry, but which derive essentially from, from hardcore physical chemistry measurements. So my, my vision for the future is physical chemistry linked into the real world, having an impact on energy, having an impact on climate change, and having an impact, say, on forensic science. I mean, you'll know recently that a a, a major trial in Northern Ireland on terrorism collapsed because of the quality of the DNA evidence. That underpinning that is poor chemistry, and the future for forensic science is actually physical chemistry. Can you give us an example of how your own research would really impact on the man on the street in the way you've just described in your chat about chemistry? I think you're absolutely right to ask that question, unless 
we as chemists do have an impact on the main industry, those precious little works while are, are attempting the research, particularly true in the analytical area, but as chemistry in general. Indeed, the, the Labour Party manifesto at the present time indicates that that is the sort of purpose of science and technology is to impact on the real world, and I doubt whether any alternative manifestos are going to say anything different. So one area of my research concerns that of, of carbon as an electrochemical material, material for electrodes. So from the fundamental side, we've recently looked at materials like carbon nanotubes, like boron dope diamond, like different types of graphite surface. And we've looked at those from a fundamental aspect, trying to understand what generates fast, good, high-quality electrochemistry. And the payback is, is in terms of applications. We, we derive great pleasure from the fundamental science, but the applications actually potentially have, have, have impact. For example, <coughs> our ability to modify the surface of carbons led in November 2006 to a spinning out the company Oxtox, and that's aimed at developing roadside drug detectors. So about one third of all the fatalities in the UK in road accidents derive from, from, from drug other than alcohol-related abuse. And there's a clear need recognised by the Home Office and by their equivalent organisations across the world to put in place a roadside drug testing facility. Clearly such detectors need to be fast and they need to be accurate. And basically we have a, a, an electrochemical approach in which we use our ability to modify the surface of carbon so as to produce a response that's specific to cannabis and in a matter of of less than a minute to provide an electrical signal to a sensor which indicates simply by the, 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 the tested driver licking a simple strip, strip uh, provides an electrochemical measurement of the amount of cannabis that they may or may not have been using. So the impact on the man in the street is next time they're driving down a motorway in a few years' time, or indeed probably a year's time, they may be overtaken by a police car, flashing blue light, pulled over and given an oxid-based electrochemical strip detector to lick and their, 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 their fate is in our hands. Okay, so that's clearly a direct impact on the man in the street. Same time, our ability to modify carbon surfaces has very recently, in the last couple of months, led to a, a California-based company, Fathom Nanosensors, uh, being set up, and that's to use electrochemical measurements for measuring pH, and that, that actually underpins the whole of the biopharma area. And that's actually quite crucial financially to that. It's quite amusing to me as an electrochemist since the first ever electrochemical pH sensor was developed in Southern California by a guy called Beckman in 1929 to assess the acidity of fruit, the orange juice industry developed in Southern California. And now from Oxford we're bringing a new, totally different, revolutionized electrochemical technology back to the Americans, developing it with their money and using that to make major implications on biopharma. Third example, which is perhaps less profound, is that of detecting chili heat. Of course, we all have, have an affection for hot foods in the sense of being uh, chili hot. And that may range from Tabasco sauce at the most mild end to, to something rather more extreme uh, for in the case of aficionados. Uh, we, again, have a simple electrochemical measurement that enables us to measure the heat of a, of a chili or the heat of a chili sauce just by dipping a simple electrochemical probe into, into the relevant medium. 
chilly sensing is quite difficult because of the extreme range of, of heat that you can encounter. Traditionally, this is measured by the so-called Scoville unit, which was developed as long ago as 1912, and that involved a panel of five allegedly expert tasters diluting a sample of, of chili extract to the point at which none of the experts could detect the chili in the, in the liquid. Clearly that's a subjective and somewhat laborious process. We have a simple electric chemical probe that gives you exactly the right number in a matter of moments. So you touched there on the fact that you've done a spin-out, set up a spin-out company from, from your work here. Is that selling out rather from the academically funded research? So it isn't selling out. Um, it's actually doing exactly what we're in business to do. You asked earlier whether I had an impact on the man in the street and there's absolutely no way you're going to have an impact with your scientific research unless you bring it to the public. One way of doing this most efficiently is by means of spinning out of the company. Of course one can actually do license deals with large established companies, the attraction of spin-outs is at the university, and, and to be fair, the academic to some extent get, gets uh, the, the maximum payback. It also means that the control of the company, control of the science, control of the impact, it is within the hands to some extent of the academic, certainly to a much greater extent than, than doing it through a traditional means of passing the, the invention directly onto large industry. Also, we're benefited here in Oxford by having ISIS Innovation, who have a lot of experience in the area of, of spinning out, and keeping control of the invention is really quite important. There are many examples in the past of good, good science being bought up and then essentially fossilised, left to, to not exploited to the maximum. The aim of keeping academics partially in control of the destiny means that if we have a good idea, we can impact maximally. Okay. So why is Oxford the place for you? Uh, Oxford is a very nice, attractive place to live in the south of England, has a moderately good climate, is a very nice surroundings, full of interesting people, but it's not the only place on the planet. It's, it's, it's a great place to do science. I enjoy it. I enjoy the interaction between teaching and research, which is perhaps a little bit unusual here. The tutorial-based system for undergraduate teaching is almost unique and the ability to, to wander away from the lab for a couple of hours, give tutorials to enthusiastic, bright, intelligent young students is, is, a, is a bonus. You mentioned some specific examples of outcomes from your research, but what's the sort of broader view that's um, going to impact on all of us in our future lives? I've hinted that physical chemistry underpins chemistry and science more broadly. I think there are many potential areas of impact, but overwhelmingly the issue of climate change is one that, that concerns all of us at the moment, and physico-chemical processes actually underpin a large part of that, and the ability to bring laboratory-based chemistry to bear on that particular problem actually may turn out to be a planet-saving activity. You've given us three examples of your, how your work has already impacted on yeah. life for us now, but what's the direction that you're taking and what's going to be your next big outcome that we're going to get excited about? Okay, let me give you two big outcomes of our research. First, we're interested in looking at nanoparticles as electrode materials. Uh, we've recently, or we're currently doing some work in which we put very small particles, nanometer-sized particles of gold, onto substrates such as carbon nanotubes 
and use those as electrochemical sensors. One particular application we're looking at is that of detecting arsenic, which you may be aware is, is vitally important as a contaminant of drinking water supplies in third world places such as Bangladesh, where there are huge cancer problems as a result of this, but also in first world countries such as part of the United States. So nanoparticles for electrochemical sensors I see as a, having tremendous impact and opening up a whole new vista. Second area I see is that of room temperature ionic liquids. Uh, these are liquids that are liquid at room temperature but composed 100% of ions. That gives them unusual properties, not least their zero volatility or near zero volatility, coupled with the fact that they have a high conductivity means that they are very appealing to electrochemists as solvents, but also this zero volatility aspect means that they may find tremendous use in gas sensors. So we have a program of work with Honeywell which is designed at developing gas sensors. So if you want to detect hydrogen sulfide, that's a toxic gas, if you drill for oil, it comes out of the ground and it kills people. You might be drilling for oil at plus 60 degrees in the desert in Saudi Arabia or at minus 60 degrees in northern Siberia. You need a sensor that you can put down well that tells you when the hydrogen sulfide is going to come out so that people can get away from the drilling head and that sensor's got to work not only at the high pressure of the oil well but at temperatures from plus to minus 60. Room temperature ionic liquids open us up to doing exactly that research. So there's clearly information coming out all the time from this research. How do you ensure that that information gets shared and keeps the ball rolling? Well, my group has always adopted an aggressive publication policy. Since the year 2001, we've published in excess of 50 research publications a year. I currently have an H index of 49, and it's ever increasing. And it's a belief that actually, as soon as you generate some new science of any importance, publish it, otherwise somebody else will be doing it. You want to be in there first. Equally, if you do have good science, it's your duty to share it with the rest of the world and speed things along. So publishing in top quality research journals is absolutely the first, second and third criteria by which you would judge dissemination. However, in Oxford, as I've already hinted, ISIS are very good at bringing commercially significant advances to the attention of people who might be interested, and that ranges from large companies to small companies to indeed small private investors. And indeed, an imp in relating to the Chile device I mentioned, we had no less than a hundred piece, uh, pieces of media taking that up, ranging from the Daily Mirror, which we describe as Oxford Boffins, to the New York Times, to, to, to the BBC, and that's a fantastic payback to the students who do the research. You know, seeing that, their work in the press, whether it's in English or Vietnamese, is a fantastic boost for the science. And actually, the moment you're in the international media, you get payback because companies will be in touch with you. So, for example, the commercialization of our chili detector is proceeding with a company in India, and they simply read about it in the East India Times on a Saturday morning, the day after the Oxford press release, and by Monday, ISIS and ourselves were talking to them. So you um, run and edit a journal yourself. Why do you do that, and, and what, why is that important? Well, I founded the journal Electric Chemistry Communications 10 years ago. <coughs> Pretty awesome task setting up a journal from scratch. You're sat there on day one with a secretary, computers, etc., waiting for the first paper to come in, and you kind of think it might never happen. But it did, and we in fact rejected the first paper we had within 48 hours. 
We now deal with over 1,800 papers per year through my office, and you ask, why do I do that? Well, it's a lot of work, but it actually means that you're at the forefront of electrochemical science. You know absolutely all of the developments, and that is intellectually satisfying. It also gives you a bit of a business advantage in the sense of planning your own research and seeing where things are heading. But it's also part of the service to the community. We all write papers. We want them refereed. We want them published. Somebody has to look after that. So it's part of the duty of most academics to act as a referee and, if asked, act as an editor. You must work with and have a lot of people working for you on all this research that you do. How do you set about sort of identifying and um, building relationships with good research collaborators and a good research team? Uh, I've run a group of 20 to 25 people for, for quite a long time now. Um, basically that's an internationally based team so I pride myself on having a large number of people from all sorts of parts of the planet as well as people who come through the local UK or indeed Oxford system. I find having a mix of international and local people to be particularly synergistic. Uh, I have a lot of research contacts across the world, across the planet, so a lot of people come to me by simply bumping into me, not just at conferences but also through collaborations. So we've had PhD students in the group from places such as Estonia, Ukraine, places that are pretty far flung to most people's mind. Yeah, and they've made a fantastic impact. They've brought a different perspective. They've contributed hugely to the research and actually that the interaction between people from different backgrounds actually is quite quite stimulating. So if you take on ex-Soviet students, they're mathematically and physically extremely capable, probably in advance of most of the, the Western European and certainly American guys. Um, and so they provide a certain input in that direction. On the other hand, I'm quite happy to take synthetically motivated people. They bring a different dimension to the the research. So research group seminars can actually have a whole range of questions which are really embracing chemistry as a whole and that's really what I see electric chemistry and physical chemistry at the heart of, of chemistry. Well there's obviously never a dull moment around here and in your lab so thank you very much for all that description today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much Philippa.